This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the House of Representatives is voting today to require parental consent for abortions and to strip the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence of their exclusive contract with the state. A federal appeals court in Atlanta rules against the state in a challenge over voting rights for former felons. The governor's office says they'll appeal. The president of New College of Florida comes to the Capitol for an existential moment. He's trying to stop a bill that calls for his university to become a branch campus of FSU. Crime survivors gather at the state capitol, calling for major changes in the criminal justice system. They want more rehabilitation and less incarceration to break the cycle of violence. On the Sunrise interview, we'll talk with Steve Vancor to get his take on next month's presidential preference primary and the scandal at the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We'll also have your daily calendar of events and get the latest in the continuing adventures of Florida Man, who has a serious drug problem. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, February 20th. Governor Ron DeSantis' legal team loses another battle over voting rights for former felons, but the war goes on. A federal appeals court Wednesday upheld an injunction issued by a Tallahassee federal judge that allows ex-felons to register to vote despite not being able to pay the fines and fees imposed as part of their sentence. Amendment 4, which was approved by Florida voters in 2018, restores the right to vote to former felons who've completed their sentences. But the legislature passed an implementing bill last year requiring all fines, fees, and restitution be paid back before rights are restored. That law was challenged in federal court, where the trial judge ruled that mandating financial obligations as a requirement to vote is unconstitutional when the would-be voters can't afford it. The governor appealed that decision to the federal court in Atlanta, where the three-judge panel just upheld the injunction and ruled against the state. DeSantis' press office says they will ask the entire court to reconsider that decision. The Florida House is scheduled to take a final vote today on the most controversial bill of the 2020 session, the one requiring underage girls to get parental consent before they get an abortion. Representative Erin Grawl was grilled Wednesday as her bill hit the floor for questions and amendments. Senate Bill 404 requires a minor to obtain parental consent in order to obtain an abortion and increases the penalties for health care providers that violate the requirements of the infants born alive provisions of the abortion statutes. That is the bill, Madam Speaker. Are there questions of the sponsor? Are there questions of the sponsor? Oh yeah, there were lots of questions and lots of amendments. It went on for hours. Representative Escamani. Thank you so much, Madam Speaker. Thank you, Representative Grawl. Um, is it not safer, based on medical standards and guidelines, statistics, is, is a abortion access safe in this country and even safer compared to giving birth, especially in the case of a, of a person on the age of 18? Representative Grawl. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Uh, my opinion is that it is not, and it always ends in a death sentence for one child. Democrats offered a series of amendments that were all defeated, and the House will be approving SB 404 during today's floor session. Then it goes to the governor, who has already promised to sign it. The House will also be voting today on a bill by Representative Juan Alfonso Fernandez Barqui to eliminate the state law that creates a sweetheart deal for the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, giving them exclusive rights to distribute almost $50 million per year in state and federal funding for domestic violence shelters. The people who ran the coalition were accused of diverting millions of dollars for themselves and refusing to open their books for the Department of Children and Families. It is certainly not in DCF's best interest to contract specifically with one statewide entity when it comes to specific service providers. Just to give you a short summary on what's, what's transpired is that this entity has managed to basically become a, 
a monopoly when it comes to statewide uh, services for domestic violence providers. And the way that they structured their board, they essentially became incredibly self-serving. This was an entity that was brought into statute in the early 2000s at some time. And because of their internal structure, they've been able to manipulate the finances of that organization and take money away uh, from individuals who needed it. And they basically, uh, they basically diverted funds to enrich themselves and not provide it to the victims of domestic violence the way that this money was specifically intended. In this situation here that we have here, there was some specific wrongdoing. And what my bill does is essentially just take them out of statute. The House has already issued subpoenas to 14 former employees of the coalition as the investigation into their finances continues. Supporters of New College of Florida are asking state lawmakers to put the brakes on a controversial bill that would turn the Sarasota University into a branch campus of Florida State University. New College President Dr. Donald Shea says his school is unique in the state university system and merging with FSU will undermine their mission as a liberal arts college. We're in our 60th year and New College is unique within the Florida State University system. It offers a small, challenging, individualized liberal arts education. Our unique curriculum, which with its directed independent study, its close interaction between um, professors and students and students and students, doesn't fit well within Florida State or any other larger university. And folding it into FSU would compromise its special value and leave Florida with nothing like it. The idea of folding it in before has already been tried. When the legislature established New College as a standalone institution in 2001, that wisdom was recognized almost immediately. The year after it became independent, New College was recognized as the top liberal arts college in the country. And it hasn't stopped excelling since then. The legislative plan proposed is to save dollars, but it really it's hard to see that. It, um, it produces minimal prospects for savings, and the disruption um, is way more than uh, the savings would justify and completely threaten uh, this unique school. Representative Randy Fine's bill targets New College along with Florida Polytechnic, which would become a branch campus of the University of Florida. He claims the mergers will save money, but Representative Margaret Good of Sarasota says the bill came out of nowhere and was approved in committee without any sort of serious review. There is no evidence that this merger will actually make New College Florida more cost efficient than it already is. There has been no study done on how this would lower the cost or what the benefits or challenges would be. In fact, before this bill dropped last week, none of the stakeholders were consulted. This is a big decision that needs thoughtful discussion, and that has not happened. Representative Newt Newton serves on the budget subcommittee to approve the merger bill, and he says even lawmakers were blindsided. This was not one of the um, priorities on our committee because I serve on higher ed appropriations. Never did we cover anything about folding universities into each other. That never came up and never happened. So that found me uh, blindsided by this bill and this decision. Um, I think that um, the Senate and the House should stand down from this until they do an actual analysis and or um, a workshop to see what would and would not work.
I think just looking at dollars and trying to compare apples to oranges is not the right way to do this. New College has been an independent uh, system down there. It provided opportunities for the schools in my district, namely Booker High School, which is predominantly African-Americans, to have an inroad and access to a higher, better liberal arts education. So I support New College remaining independent, and I hope that the Senate and the House will refrain from these actions with this bill and do it proper and in order. Lawmakers were not the only ones caught off guard. President O'Shea says none of the universities singled out in that bill had any warning from the legislature. Our lobbyists phoned us up at Monday at 4 o'clock and said, hey, you might want to look at this bill. It's important. Uh, and that's when I found out about it. I found out about um, when it comes out. Um, and it was, so they hadn't heard about it either. In fact, no one had heard about it. And, um, you know, I read, looked at the thing, and it was going to get heard Wednesday, but this was Monday, and I said, holy cow, this is hard to believe. And, you know, everybody said, well, don't worry about that. That's a, a joke. But, yeah, so we were, we were taken off guard. We didn't have any warning. I, and I really believe, that I, I know that Polly didn't. Um, Poly, I know that FSU didn't. And I, I, and I don't think, I haven't asked directly, but I'd heard through the grapevine that, um, the, uh, that the University of Florida administration didn't hear anything about it either. And none of those schools, want, you know, we all have our different missions, so nobody wants that. The university merger bill has been approved by two House committees, but has not been heard in the Senate. Crime victims rally in the Capitol, calling for fundamental changes in the way people are treated behind bars. Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice is a network of more than 40,000 crime survivors across the country. They have several local chapters in Florida. They do not want vengeance. LaDonna Butler of St. Petersburg says they want a criminal justice system that does more than just lock people up and throw away the key. There are a number of common sense policies that we would like to see the legislator adopt. From reforming the way our probation system treats technical violations of probation, to incentivizing rehabilitation for people in prison so that they can come out of the system better rather than worse. However, an issue that touches me most personally is our state's glaring need for more protections of crime victims for people just like myself. That's why this legislative session, we believe it is critical for legislators to pass policies to expand unemployment and employment protections to victims of any type of crime and pass protections so that victims are able to relocate without facing adverse negative economic implications. No one, I mean no one, should have to go through what so many of our members go through and to be victimized twice. First, by the perpetrator of the crime. And then punished again by either losing their job or forced to choose between it and their own sense of well-being and safety or even forced to go and stay in an unsafe home. Jolie Manning of St. Augustine says her daughter might still be alive if Florida focused on rehabilitation instead of incarceration. I lost my daughter in 2013. The woman who had killed her had been arrested 10 times for escalating crimes. I believe if this woman had received rehabilitation at any time, 
my daughter may still be alive. It is essential that we get this right, that we do not put people away in prison only to warehouse them and make them worse than when they went in. Our state needs to shift our money spent on warehousing people and instead focus on rehabilitation. Stedman Bailey of Miramar was a wide receiver for the St. Louis Rams, whose football career came to an end when he was shot in the head while visiting friends in South Florida. He's a member of the Crime Survivors Group. Uh, in 2015, uh, when I was an NFL player on the St. Louis Rams, and back in my home state of Florida, I became the victim of a shooting in Miami Gardens. I was in the car with my cousin, his 10-year-old son and 6-year-old daughter, and my best friend when our car was shot at over 30 times. Two bullets struck me in my head, and my cousin was also shot 11 times. At the blink of an eye, so much of my life had changed. I couldn't eat, I couldn't speak, and my NFL career that I had worked so hard to make a reality was no longer. I survived though, and so now my purpose is clear. It's important that public safety policies meet the needs of survivors and that there is a focus on prevention and rehabilitation instead of wasteful incarceration. So we really can stop the cycle of crime, harm, and trauma in our communities. Like other survivors, I know the justice system and too much of a focus on incarceration has failed to stop the cycle of crime, make us safer, or meet the needs of survivors. I'm not only a survivor, but my father has been incarcerated my whole life. Uh, so I know the justice system continues a cycle of harm. We need to reduce over-incarceration that doesn't make us safe. Invest in prevention and rehabilitation to stop the cycle of crime and make, and make sure we meet the needs of survivors to heal and recover. Members of the Crime Survivors Group say they want a public safety system that actually works, something they say we do not have today. Next up, a conversation with pollster and pundit Steve Vancour, who offers his perspective on the shifting field in the Democratic presidential free-for-all and the fuster cluck known as the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. If you live along the I-4 corridor, learn to use your business experience to impact public policy. Apply today to the Central Florida Political Leadership Institute at cflpli.org. The Orlando Economic Partnership offers this free nonpartisan program for business-minded leaders to explore whether elected or appointed office is right for them, discover political strategies to succeed and lead, and join a network of influencers. Apply by February 21st. Visit cflpli.org. That's cflpli.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest on the interview today is Steve Vancour, our resident pollster and pundit. Welcome back, Steve. Oh, thanks for having me, man. And I have to confess, you know, we're going to talk politics now, but wait, I, what a shock! I did not, I did not watch the Democratic debate last night. I frankly don't care at this point. In the Unwatchable game. TV. It's just the most hideous kind of thing in the world. <laughs> and there's nothing good on Wednesday nights, but still, not there's the a debate. lot of things to do other than watch television. Yeah, that's right. So. Generally, where are we looking now? What's happening with the Democratic field as we head into, well, the Super Tuesday? And It's really an interesting uh, thing right now because you have some unusual factors going on. You have the Bloomberg factor, which we've not seen in a Democratic primary ever. 
He is spending a phenomenal amount of money, not just on network TV, but on every channel digitally. He's running a very sophisticated operation, and he's putting a large number of bodies on the ground. So when a Democratic Women's Club is meeting in, let's just say, Broward County or something like that, they're there. And so I know they have over 100 employees in Florida alone, and they're, they're, he's serious from top to bottom. But here's the, here's the issue. Joe Biden has shown a remarkable ability to underperform relative to the polls. I mean, a fourth and a fifth place showing, and now he looks like he's cascading in Nevada as well. Uh, remember, we've, we've only had one primary, two caucuses. And by the way, as an aside, Nevada, keep an eye on this because we have a similar technological problem like we had in Iowa. So that can make it interesting. But if Joe Biden continues to underperform but stays in, Joe Biden plays the role of spoiler, and I think you're headed to convention. He becomes the sort of zombie candidate who's there but not really alive. Yeah, exactly. And he's going to try to make a stand in South Carolina. Uh, if he if he does anything but win by double digits, it's a loss for him. If he comes in second and he doesn't get out before Super Tuesday, I, you know, it, it, again, he will be at that point handing the nomination to Bernie Sanders. And if you like Bernie Sanders, you're going to root for Joe Biden to stay in. If you don't like Bernie Sanders, you're asking Joe to get out. Now, you also made the point earlier before we went on the air about you need two things going into the Florida primary. And Joe Biden doesn't appear to have any right now. Well, money and momentum. Exactly. You, uh, it, but, well, well, going into the Super Tuesday, it's 14 states across most of the United States, a little bit up in Maine, et cetera. Uh, the candidates with money right now are Buttigieg, uh, Bloomberg, and uh, Sanders. And Sanders is raking it in. I mean, he, his, his small donations are just coming in strong. So those three can compete. But remember, Bernie at this point, Bernie Sanders occupies a lane that was previously occupied by Elizabeth Warren, who at the time was surging, doing well, and then just collapsed. Okay, So Bernie occupies that far left lane. Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg and Biden are all trying to swim in the moderate lane. I mean, it's almost a, a, a Trump... In reverse, right? Remember, everybody was saying, well, he's going to hit his ceiling, he's going to hit his ceiling, and he never did. And as people kept dropping out, Trump stayed in the lead. You could be looking at Bernie Sanders going in. The difference is there's not a single state in Super Tuesday that's winner take all. So we're almost guaranteed. By the way, hold on to your ballot, Democrats, because there's still a lot to come. Uh, March 17th could be a critical day in the turning point of this election because Florida, you know, will those delegate votes will count this time. Remember, in the past, they've always been, oh, the election's functionally over. It right. doesn't look like that's going to happen this year. So how is Bloomberg affecting this all now, just spending this much money and coming in so late in the game? I mean, they're just starting to do the vetting now that would have been would have happened a year ago. I'm, I've been looking at lots and lots of polls. Well, you know, he's also insulated himself from attack by coming in so late and with such ferocity. It reminds me of the Schwarzkopf uh, strategy in the Middle East, right? Just come in with overwhelming force. And, shock and, and awe. Shock and awe. And again, it's not, you know, the papers are reporting it's just a strong network buy. If it was a strong network buy, Tom Steyer would be doing better than he is, okay? It's it's a ground to t bottom to top. It's probably something he's been preparing uh, formally for at least a year. He's brought in some of the best digital marketing teams in America. Uh, got a great ground game, and he's not afraid to spend his money, and he's spending it top to bottom. So he's like, in looking at the polls, it's like every time you hit refresh on the polling data, the aggregators or whatever, it's like Bloomberg picks up a point. He has not hit his ceiling yet. Uh, so 
It looks like he's rising. Joe Biden is collapsing. And it's a matter of timing at this point. It's like a, a game where, you know, are they going to get enough points on the board before the clock runs out? Understood. And segueing here, back in Tallahassee, the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Go Violence. Go ahead, say it, Rick. Go ahead, say it. And I already said it. You mean you mean, uh, you mean Fuster, Fuster Cluck? Yeah. <laughs> well, wait, you know, it's really interesting because this goes back to, and kudos to Mary Ellen for uh, Mary Ellen Kloss for, uh, I guess, uncovering this story. One of the finer but, supporters in the Capitol Press and, Corps. And also, kudos to the uh, Department of Children and Families started asking for audits and documents. And uh, so Secretary Popple does deserve a shout out there as well. He began asking for data, asking for information, because remember, Rick, this is a sole source entity. They don't go out to bid. They're statutorily written into the statutes, into Florida law, that they are the exclusive provider of this. And then they went ahead and built a board of people who get that money. So guess what kind of board it's going to be, an acquiescent board. And the, the payout package was obscene. One thing to make a lot of money, in a, especially like in a private bid contract. Yeah, but not off of domestic violence shelters. That's no, no, no. But if there was a, a private bid and they had a very large budget, but the fact that she's making, you know, over two and a half million dollars a year on a 40 something million dollar a year budget is shocking and jaw dropping. And not even having to show up at work. I mean, a lot of that was time off. Right. You know, executive compensation will do stuff like 30 days off with paid leave, but we know how hard executives work. There's a lot of times CEOs work 70 hours a week and say, look, at the end of the year, if you didn't take that off, we'll pay you. Her executive compensation package gave her 210 days off a year. Again, I don't have a problem with people making money, but this was a sole source bid, statutorily hard written into the law, and then she was able to create a board of her own making of people who were dependent on her money. You need an independent board, you need separate bid process to make this thing level. And then if she was doing such a great job and her board wanted to pay her, yeah, it's probably a little rich, but if they wanted to pay her, you'd have to have a little less problem with that, right? Right. So, but they didn't. They wrote it into statute. They think it was wrong. Does this all boil down to a cult of personality around Tiffany Carr? Was that what drove the whole thing? Uh, I think it began a long time ago, and it began to creep up and creep up and creep up. So, yes. And this was a three years three years ago she got the renewal, as I understand it. So, it seems that way. She was beloved by the Bushes. Um, she was beloved in the space. And then somewhere along the line, it became just more and more and more. And it's a kind of a shame because that's money that could have, to your point, could have gone to domestic violence shelters, et cetera. So the lesson from all this? Um, don't build a not-for-profit into statute and make them have to not bid out to process. A competitive bid process and an independent board makes you lean and mean. Our guest today on Sunrise has been Steve Vancour. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back, Steve. Your political calendar of events starts with the Florida Board of Clinical Social Work, Marriage and Family Therapy, and Mental Health Counseling. They're meeting at 8 in Alachua County. The House State Affairs Committee also meets at 8. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission meets at 8.30. They'll talk about increasing alligator egg collections. Sounds like fun. They'll also receive an update on illegal trafficking of turtles, and they'll revise some hunting rules. The University of Central Florida Board of Trustees meets at 8.30 in Orlando. The Senate Appropriations Committee meets in Tallahassee at 9. They'll be meeting all day long. The House Commerce Committee also meets at 9. The Florida Supreme Court is scheduled to release its weekly opinions at 11. The House is holding floor session beginning at 1.30. Also at 1.30, the staff of the Joint Legislative Auditing Committee will select lobbying firms for audits of compensation reports. 
The Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee is holding a conference call at 4. And it's time once again to check in with Florida Man, who has a problem with drugs and littering. A 29-year-old Florida man pulled over for speeding on an interstate highway in Montana faces federal drug charges after authorities say a trooper found 78 pounds of methamphetamine in his van. Authorities say Nicholas James Imhoff rented the vehicle in Las Vegas and the drugs were found under floor storage compartments in garbage bags wrapped in duct tape. It was the largest amount of meth ever seized during a traffic stop in Montana, equal to more than 282,000 individual doses. Finally, three armed Florida men who held up a Clearwater drugstore and made off with 10,000 opioid pills are busted because of littering. As they drove away from the store, detectives say the robbers began emptying the pill bottles and throwing them out the window. They followed the trail of bottles to a home in Clearwater, where they spotted the getaway car and arrested two men inside. A third man was busted after they found some incriminating videos on one of the other suspect's cell phones. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.